What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Over the past handful of years, white supremacy in the U.S. has reared its head with vitriolic images like the Tiki Torch March in Charlottesville in 2017 or the January 6, 2021 conservative attack on the U.S. Capitol. On today's show, I'll be in conversation with an author whose new book places modern white supremacy and American racialization in a long-term historical context of Christian values and morals. We're going to go back a thousand years to explore how European Christianity defined itself for centuries through anti-Semitism. That logic eventually became secularized but maintained a Christian compass, a North Star that led the colonization of the Americas, the social creation of race as we know it, and anti-Black racism. This exchange between anti-Semitic and anti-Black logics continue to interplay through, of course, American slavery, jumping forward to the Jewish Holocaust in Europe, then the U.S. Civil Rights Act, and finally back to the present, where we are terribly aware of white supremacist gatherings that chant things like, and these are the quotes, the Jews will not replace us and the South will rise again. Joining us to better understand how white supremacy is rooted in Christianity, our guest today is Magda Tetter, a professor of history and the Schwidler Chair of Judaic Studies at Fordham University, as well as president of the American Academy of Jewish Research. Today, we'll be talking about her book, Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Antisemitism and Racism. Magda, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. So, We'll get into the really important weeds of history. And again, we're going to go back a thousand years. But I'd like to start this conversation by telling a story that I hope will ground the conversation just a little. And I want to see how it resonates with you. So this is going back about 15 years ago while I was in graduate school at the University of Amsterdam in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I was working a food service job on the side selling paninis. I couldn't speak any Dutch at all. The people I was interacting with were just about all perfectly fluent in English, but my lack of Dutch was a conversation starter. So it was a regular thing for customers to ask where I'm from. And after saying California, they'd ask where my family is from. I'd say Poland. Keep in mind that I'm in the Netherlands, where the national myth of Dutch identity is blonde hair, blue eyed, generally tall, very light skinned people. My hair is dark and long and curly. My eyes are dark brown, and compared to the racialized Dutch skin color, mine is, I guess, kind of olive. In my entire life in the U.S. before that, I learned of my race being a white person. When I told these Dutch strangers that my family is from Poland, it was just about the same exact reaction every time. They would give me some kind of eye adjustment looking me up and down and say something like, no, you can't be Polish. I'd say my family is Jewish from Poland, And I got this exact same reaction every time. It was, oh, it was the first time that I'd personally felt racialized and realizing that was possible because if race is a social construction, that means it's constructed differently in different social contexts. Jews in Europe are racialized differently than we are in the Bay Area context where I grew up. But also the racialization of Jewish people in Europe as we're about to dive into, also sets the scene for racialization of Black people in the U.S. So, Magda, your book helped me reflect on that experience in a newer and deeper way. I'm wondering if, first off, you have any reaction to that story, and then if you could talk broadly about what it means to have a social construction of race where societies develop in their own ways, but also in relation to to each other. Uh, that was a, a, a wonderful story, and I think it um, it does illustrate some of the points that my book raises uh, raises in terms of connect, connecting um, the American conceptions of race and ra- racializations uh, along um, mostly skin color. That's how it developed in the in in the colonies and then in in the United States. Uh, but also uh, with Europe and the place Jews uh, held in European identity as it's uh, as it is constructed. So it's um, it. I think it's a very poignant story of uh, 
of the complexity of idea of race, but in as I raise as I discuss in my book, it's um, not necessarily about the skin color, but it's about social hierarchies and power. And and let's get into the history of that, where we're creating social hierarchies and power. How was early European Christian identity constructed, and how were Christian values set up in ways that use Jews and anti-Semitism as the kind of anti-Christian other. And again, we're talking about power. Right. So um, the, the, the word supremacy, uh, and I think we, uh, we often use it here uh, and is white supremacy, um, sometimes figuratively, sometimes the way it, uh, what it means, that is authority and power and related also to, to politics. Um, this um, question of white supremacy emerges only when the idea of race along color lines emerges. Uh, and that's only when the Europeans begin to engage in the colonial enterprise and in slave trade. The, uh, but the idea of hierarchy and power and the idea of domination as, uh, is, is um, not necessarily originating from the moment Europeans imagine themselves as white Europeans. It actually goes back to the um, Christian theology, first theology, and then Christian law once the uh, Christianity becomes an empire and gains political power. Um, and that's when we see the transformation of the idea of Christianity as the true religion and negating Judaism and seeing it as, uh, as lower, as um, worse, as uh, demeaned and, and less valued in the eyes of God and in the eyes of, as should be in the eyes of people. The Christian supersession is the replacement, and I think this is a poignant point. The Jews will not replace us, but the Christian supersessionist theory is that Christianity replaced Judaism. But of course, Jews remained in um, in in the world uh, as Jews. So that replacement um, uh, is always a, a, the idea of Christian uh, Christianity replacing Judaism is always a little bit of, uh, of trouble, and Jews were always uh, sort of um, reminding Christians about the doubt of that idea of replacement. But the but the notion of Christian theological su- superiority was was developed very early on. Um, at that point, Christianity w- did not have political power. In fact, it was a sect that was a persecuted sect. But within a few centuries, it did gain political power. Christian uh, Constantine recognized Christianity as a legal religion, and then later on, uh, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So now we can begin to talk about Christian supremacy because now Christian uh, political power is beginning to uh, apply theology into law. And as such, it's also discriminating against um, non-Christians, pagans, but also issuing laws that specifically uh, place Jews in a lower um, social positions. So we have now theological hierarchy coupled with law, uh, and you could argue that this is the first uh, moment in history where we have a, a creating of legal structures. We talk, um, you know, in a critical race theory about um, a structural racism. Here you have, it's not racism because it's not along racial lines. This is along religious line. But you have, you begin to have structural legal discrimination against a group of people because they are who they are. And in the case of Jews, it was because they were Jews. They, uh, and it was on, on religious, uh, religious grounds. So that's the moment where we have the rise of Christian supremacy. And the way law, as you and your audience well knows, functions 
is that once it's established a certain legal principles, they are replicated uh, over time and they both reflect values, but they also shape social values and social realities and social hierarchies. Uh, so that's what we have. And that goes even more than a, a thousand years. That goes back to the fourth, fifth century when that first moment of Christian legal supremacy um, uh, is um, uh, articulated uh, uh, in, the, in the context of Jews. And then it's replicated in the medieval period in the language which goes back to theology of Jewish servitude, um, of perpetual servitude. So I'll, I'll stop here. A couple things I specifically want to follow up on. I guess first, you described that, that there was a creation of structural discrimination against Jews uh, once Christianity was able to hold some power. I'm wondering if you can give some specific examples of how, how that was legally enshrined. So, so that we can ground ourselves in, in something that's very material and impacting on humans. Yeah, yeah so the, the first uh, anti-miscegenation laws are actually issued against um, Jews intermarrying with Christians. Um, so that's one thing. And, and again, it's singling out specifically Jews. So that's an important aspect of that. The other example, and this is an example of uh, where, where you can, uh, you can see the uh, idea of power uh, playing itself out in, in law is the regulation of uh, slave ownership. Obviously, Roman Empire um, had um, slaves. There, it was a slave society, not in the, in the sense as the um, colonial slave society was, but there were, there were slaves who were working in the fields or in, as domestic slaves and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, not in a racialized way. They came from different uh, backgrounds, different countries, uh, differently captured, sometimes at sea, sometimes sold themselves to slaves. So it's a complex issue of slavery in the Roman society. But slavery existed and p different people owned um, human being slaves. Um, what we have is we have a restriction on uh, Jewish ownership of Christian slaves, not on Jewish ownership of slaves and not on Christian ownership of Christian slaves or the prohibition of ownership of Christian slaves, but specifically uh, prohibiting Jews from owning specifically Christian slaves. And the concern was um, that Jews could potentially con convert those uh, Christians to Judaism, but it was also an idea that they would have power over Christians. And theologically, and I mentioned theology uh, briefly uh, earlier, um, the articulation is that that the, the the Jews were imagined as the elder brother um, and Christian Christianity as the younger brother and the sort of theological biblical siblings that emerge. And there is a verse in the book of Genesis that is then used in the New Testament by Paul: "The elder shall serve the younger." And the, the, the Christian theologians began to think about it, that Jews should be servants to the younger brother, to Christianity. Um, so you have here the, uh, the idea that Jews will, cannot own Christian slaves. Later on, when slavery sort of disappeared uh, or was transformed in medieval Christian Europe, it, it came to prohibition of uh, hiring Christian servants. But there, there was also a, a law that, um, that began to prohibit Jews from uh, holding public office, especially public office that would have any authority over Christians. So that's how you begin to see that singling out of Jews as a group and then of issuing certain laws that specifically signal uh, their place in social hierarchy. You cannot do what Christians can do, and you cannot be in positions of uh, authority the same if you have authority over Christians. So you describe the structural discrimination that was that was built against Jews as built on religious grounds, and I'm wondering if we can take a moment to just talk about. I mean, there's also an 
ethnic grounds, right? So maybe uh, skin color does not come into play in the same way that it does by the time that we have American colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. But there, there, there's a certain combined relationship between uh, religious discrimination and ethnic discrimination, right? That is technically true, though um, Jews could convert to Christianity and all these legal um, disabilities would have been erased at that point, right? So, so that is, um, Jews obviously are a people that are also a, a religious people, so it's sort of ethno-religion in some ways. Uh, so you're right that it is ethnic, but it is also religious. At the same time, the laws apply to Jews who are professing Jews. So again, uh, technically, if they converted to Christianity, uh, Christianity, all these disabilities would disappear. Now, how does it tie to theology? I mentioned briefly um, that certain verses in the uh, scriptures were interpreted in political sense. So um, the verse that I mentioned, uh, the elders are served the younger, um, was, it was not necessarily cited to create a social hierarchy. But with time, um, it became interpreted. And by the time that Christianity became a political power, that verse said, oh, that's what it means, that Jews should be servants to Christians, that, that Jews should not have power to Christians. But there was another way in which that, that, that I call it habits of thinking about Jews uh, were deeply shaped by religious uh, beliefs and then later on um, affirmed by these legal structures. So in, the, in Christian theology, the language that's used to describe Christianity is generally positive. Um, Christianity is spiritual. Um, it's about promise. Um, it's, um, a, 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 it's about faith. So faith, spirituality, promise are put in a higher uh, position than flesh. Jews are uh, and their Jewish law and, uh, and ob obedience to and ob uh, observance of commandments is considered carnal, earthly. Um, they are uh, descendants by flesh, not by prom promise. So you can see these, these values that are attached in just thinking about Judaism, Christianity, and what it means that affirms that spiritual and that theological superiority of Christianity and uh, demeans, demeans Judaism and, and therefore Jews also as carnal, as earthly. Uh, and that, that becomes a habit of thinking that will centuries later resonate uh, in modern anti-Semitism in uh, the description of Jews as uh, materialistic, as greedy, as and, and so on and so forth. So uh, again, we may not think about some of those um, modern anti-Jewish tropes as relating back to theology and many of the modern anti-Semites don't think in theological terms, but that theology over repetition over centuries and, and through the combination with law has created certain habits of thinking about Jews as being inferior, as not shouldn't be in equal or uh, positions, as having too much power. In fact, that trope of Jewish power, this anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic trope of Jewish power, I argue, emerges precisely from the idea of Jewish inferiority that emerges from Christian theology and then um, through the language of Jewish servitude and Christian law um, that puts Jews in that inferior legal position uh, leads to this notion that if Jews want to be equal, and in modern times, if they want to exercise equal citizen rights, political rights, um, they don't deserve it. They have too much power. They are in places where they shouldn't be, right? Because those centuries of habits of thinking of Jews as being inferior um, has brought, brought 
fruit and 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 you don't even have to think theologically to uh to think about Jews in that kind of inferior position and feel discomfort when they are not in that inferior position so we're talking about laws that were enshrined uh that that really enshrined this discrimination particularly against Jews I'm wondering if you can uh, ground us in how some of those laws were made and where the centers of power were. Um, some of the things that really stood out from from your book for me were the papal decrees over centuries. Yes, so there were uh, obviously two areas of power in uh, in Christian Europe. Um, uh, there was the church and papal power, and then in the context of the Christian Roman Empire, it was uh, it was uh, embodied first in the emperor. The church and the state were kind of the same. But then uh, when the Roman Empire collapsed, uh, we have the rise of papal power, of church power, church authority. But we also have secular powers. And, uh, and the language of perpetual Jewish servitude is inserted into canon law and it is repeated by um, popes uh, in various decrees and laws that are then uh, applied in various places across Europe to remind Jews and to remind Christians that, that Jews shouldn't be in any position, that they shouldn't have Christian servants, that they shouldn't um, uh, be in position of power, that they should be distinguished um, by clothing, uh, so their 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 position is uh, is um, they remember their 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 social position, their punishment by God, right of their of that perpetual uh, perpetual uh, servitude. Um, the 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 introduction of the ghettos of the Roman ghetto, for instance, was justified that Jews should be reminded that they are in perpetual servitude to Christians and should not be insolent and arrogant and behave as if they were Christian equal in society. So that that power dynamic was constantly reminded in the church decrees, but it was also somewhat more mildly. Um, uh, resonating and uh, and seen also in uh, secular uh, law um, regulating Jewish Christian relations, and again, mostly um, uh, the of uh, positions of power in in public office, prohibition of of hiring Jews, and and also and Jews hiring Christians, so they would not have position, uh, power and authority over, over Christians. Uh, so again, that was in a much less theological way, but it was repeated also in, in, in secular, secular law. You're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. We're in conversation with Magda Tetter about her book, Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Anti-Semitism and Racism. So Magda, I want to move us forward in time toward and and through the beginning of the colonization of the Americas. I'm wondering if we can talk about when and how we transitioned from more openly Christian theologic logics to more secular ones that, that then developed and used whiteness as a legal framework to hold power over people who are not white and, of course, in the colonized American context over black people in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, yes, yeah, so so um, the work that the Christian uh, supremacy and the superiority was doing in the medieval period uh, then brings fruit with the colonial expansion, and um, the colonial expansion, uh, Spain and Iberia is very crucial because uh, slavery didn't disappear there. Slavery continued from the Roman times through the medieval period. Um, there, so it wasn't something that was uh, that was unknown and uh, and phased out as it was more in northern Europe. Um, so the exploitation was much uh, much easier. But what we see um, in the uh, col- uh, ex- uh, colonial expansion is we uh, with the African slave trade. Uh, we begin to see racialization of slavery. That is, in the earlier period, even as slavery continued in Iberia or in the Mediterranean, 
as I mentioned, was not racialized. Miguel de Cervantes, for instance, was captured and for five years kept uh, in, in captivity in, in, in a form of enslavement or unfreedom. So, um, so there were slave, enslaved people and captured people and free people from all kinds of backgrounds. But it is with the uh, with the colonial expansion and the need for the population and the use of uh, of labor that we have a total transformation of even the form of um, of slave uh, enslavement into uh, a much more critical. Uh, turning into slave societies where slavery plays a, a central role, but also um, uh, with the uh, with the uh, African transatlantic slavery, we we begin to have a racialization where slavery is associated with um, blackness, but that is again building on that sense of European domination, and that was at the at the, uh, uh, religious domination earlier in the medieval period, and now it also is uh, grafted onto the uh, perception of whiteness, of Christian uh, European whiteness and domination. Um, and um, this is um, uh, really well uh, symbolically shown in, in the transformation from the European religious sense of domination um, uh, uh, into the racialized domination uh, in two ways. One, iconographically, where um, the uh, Europe is, is shown as a, as a white Christian queen. Europa Regina is this sort of image. Regina is Latin for queen. Europe, the queen, dominating over other continents and the 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 figure of Europe holds a globe and a cross and a crown as as this dominating figure and the other continents are shown in different levels of um, uh, of disturbment and and undress depending on the way the, their advancement and civilization so to speak was was seen. And the other way in which we see that um, that uh, transformation and that racialization is actually in a word that I am on a small crusade to eliminate from our vocabulary, and that is the word to denigrate. So we use it commonly. I see it in writing all the time. But the word denigrate initially meant just making something black. It, Nigra, the, uh, the word uh, is from Latin, black. Uh, to denigrate, it was like if you wanted to paint your wall black, you would use the word denigrare to make it black. But in the early modern period, what we historians call the early modern period, that is 16th through the 18th century, in that period, that word changes a meaning. It now begins to see blackness not just as something dark and maybe you know dirty as blackness may have been before, but also lower. So you you see the word denigrate or denigrare begin to have the uh, the status, the hierarchy, to to uh, to to denote something that is degrading. So I will denigrate you. I will make you like the black person. Mm. And that is associated with uh, enslavement of black people. And that's why I say we should, we should really remove it from our uh, vocabulary because it's a product of the slave era. But it also uh, sort of means that there is something wrong with blackness and that the blackness is, in fact, demeaning. So if you say, you know, denigrate someone, you are affirming that there is something wrong and something lower and something demeaning about blackness. So that's my, my uh, sort of little... Uh, little plea here to get rid of that word, but it also is an, an illustration in the, uh, the racialization of social hierarchy through the lines of color. And um, this is, uh, although the Catholic powers of Spain and Portugal uh, did justify enslavement of Africans or anybody else uh, in order to convert them to Christianity and Catholicism 
had other forms of uh, hierarchy uh, and colorization um, in, and purity of blood that actually goes back to its uh, treatment of Jews and Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, but uh, but in the Protestant colonies uh, that is that are really the, uh, the United States is a product of the Dutch and the British. Uh, the there was a prohibition of converting uh, black enslaved people, and that was because in the concept of law uh, meant that freedom was Christian. So it implied that you would maybe have to free someone if you converted them to Christianity. So, um, so black people were not uh, uh, were not converted, and and uh, some, as one scholar pointed out, if you in the 18th century saw a black Christian, you knew they came from the Catholic uh, colonies because uh, because in the Protestant world they were not allowed to profess Christianity. So that here, uh, let me uh, circle back to law, and uh, is then. Um, uh, beautifully illustrated in the um, Virginia uh, laws of 1705. And that is the prohibition um, to uh, own Christian white slaves by, and at that point you, you, you had also white unfree people who may have been indentured servants, for instance, indentured in some way, um, who were not uh, uh, who were white and Christian, and the prohibition was against um, Jews, uh, people of color, um, the the languages Negroes and mulattoes, uh, as and Muslims um, to own a Christian or a person of um, the, or they could own a person of their complexion. So, uh, so the free freedom really became white and Christian in uh, in uh, the United States and in the in the Protestant colonies. But again, that uh, that law that I just mentioned is really echoing the um, imperial Roman laws prohibiting Jews from owning Christian sla- uh, uh, slaves. Uh, here we have the restrictions. On people of color and on, on Jews and Muslims too, uh, from um, a, having authority and owning a person who might be white and Christian. So one of the things you describe is in your book is that because slavery in the early colonial America was approached as a national issue, even though arguments for it were framed within a Christian moral framework, it was easy to forget that according to the U.S. Constitution, the United States was not a Christian nation because the Christian moral framework was such a guiding force in it. I'm wondering if you can talk about that through the lens of early uh, frameworks of citizenship in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, this is a, a, a great question because obviously um, the the U.S. Constitution does not frame itself and uh, through Christian lens. And uh, and religion is a protected one of the protected categories, the freedom of uh, of uh, of religion. Uh, but what is but but race is and and citizenship becomes uh, racialized very quickly in law through the um, in seventeen ninety through the first naturalization law, and then it's repeated and and reiterated until. Um, until the uh, the nineteenth century, the uh, that uh, the person who can be naturalized um, has to be white and th- free. So citizenship is defined, even though white or race is not explicitly stated in the constitution. Um, and there are debates of uh, uh, which I discuss in the book later on. Uh, whether it was intended, the we the people was intended to be we the white people or we the people as um, we understand it more more uh, broadly now. Um, but but the idea of citizenship that you be, you can become a naturalized person only if you are white and free 
um, defined citizenship along the racial lines. And um, Jews here is an interesting case because they are protected um, as according to the Enlightenment ideas uh, that, uh, that condemn discrimination on the basis of religion. Um, we're pro- protected by the Constitution and the, the Freedom of Religion Clause. Um, and they were, uh, which I use the phrase, white by law, in a sense that, yes, they were able to be naturalized when they arrived on the shores of the, uh, of the uh, United States. And, uh, but that didn't mean that they were always... Um, Socially accepted, um, and the, and 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 sometimes there were in various states, various uh, uh, jurisdictions, there were restrictions on their rights uh, as well, uh, such as in Maryland, for instance. So the the idea of citizenship in the United States and and racial lines or who belongs, who doesn't belong is not really settled and defined. And this is very interesting to compare the documents that are um, that the US uh, Constitution and the uh, French uh, Declaration of the Rights of Men and Citizen um, and what defines citizenship. Because the US Constitution mentions the word citizen, but it doesn't define what citizenship is. And it really doesn't do it until 1820. The 1820 Missouri debate um, really forces the question on what it means, who are citizens in the, of, of the United States. And that question is raised by the, a clause in the Missouri proposed constitution that prohibited free black people from settling in what was to become um, a new state. And that prompted a huge um, debate in Congress uh, over the admission, not, not what is commonly known, whether it should be a slave state or not a slave state. That was sort of um, uh, solved by the Missouri Compromise and the admission of Maine. But it was a far more important debate over whether uh, whether free black people uh, could settle in Missouri or not. And the debate was whether uh, then uh, all citizens of other states are protected by the U.S. Constitution and have the same rights and privileges in all other states. Um, so that is here when we be, when we begin to see that very clear debate over citizenship and race in the United States, and the very clear lines which we're still dealing with, really, whether the we the people means we the white people, and by definition also we the white Christian people, or whether it means the you know the diverse fa- fabric of the United States. Uh, that included at its founding also free uh, black people and people of other other uh, ethnicities. And when we're talking about the early 1800s or 1820s Missouri debate, we're specifically also referring to the Dred Scott case. Um, I I want to move us forward in time, just being being aware of our uh, time beginning to run out. But I think it's important to look at mid 1900s or early mid 1900s rise of white nationalism and white supremacy in Europe and and ways that those systems, and now we're beginning to talk about Nazi Germany, um, how it looked to the U.S. treatment of Black people and also of Native American people to find a model to dismantle uh, citizenship that guarantees rights and then bringing it back in, in that context to Jews. Um, yes, and if I and there's a, a really wonderful book that I recommend to everybody by James Whitman, Hitler's American Model, that really unpacks it, unpacks how the Nazi legal scholars traveled and studied in the United States its laws to then um, apply them to Jews in Europe. And one of the interesting things is, and I'll, I'll, before I get to back to the Nazi model, the American model of Nazi anti-Jewish laws, I want to say that the backlash against black citizenship after, uh, after uh, the Civil War um, 
with uh, the Jim Crow era and its uh, its legal assault on equality, it runs very interestingly in a parallel to the backlash and the rise of political anti-Semitism in Europe because they, they happen almost exactly at the same time. And, and that sort of rejection of Jewish equality in the same visceral way as the rejection of black equality in the United States. Um, and the organization of political parties around that idea of rejection. And uh, what is interesting in the United States, and this is what the Nazi scholars uh, refer to all the time, is that the United States lives in this tension between the idea of we the people and the equality um, that is pronounced certainly in the uh, in the uh, Declaration of Independence and the actual legal structures and the culture and the racial stratification and racial hierarchies that are uh, uh, very much in place and a product of the centuries of enslavement of black uh, Americans and black people. Uh, and in, in that tension means that many of the laws that are designed to discriminate against black Americans can't explicitly say, and again, we are here today as well with various laws, whether undermining the Voting Rights Act today, that it cannot explicitly state the uh, race, or it it has to uh, obfuscate the the goal of of discrimination. And this is what was very interesting, is that the Nazi legal scholars saw the American model and the American laws and the American um, uh, uh, discrimination as the ideal uh, but as, as a, as a uh, white supremacist state flawed because of all these uh, ways where they needed to obfuscate the goal of white supremacy. And what they wanted to do, is they wanted to look at the legal ways in which the discrimination and different levels of citizenship and sort of denaturalization were taking place in the United States, whether it's in relation to the Native Americans or to to black Americans, and then apply it to laws against Jews. That is, you you don't have to be a citizen, you can be a resident. You don't have to have political rights. You don't have to... um, uh, you may reside in, the, in, in a country, Brooks, and they really or you can also go um, to KPFA's website look, and, and when and we find think the obviously link for about Area Nine Four One, that's where you can listen um, to our most, podcast content. The first thing that comes in is the, the, this, the segregation, and it's the you know whites places. only or colored people side. But James Whitman argues this is just you know the red herring. The far more important things are the way inequality. And discrimination were embedded in law and creating second-class citizenship against Black Americans and to undermine their um, equality granted to them by the uh, Reconstruction Era amendments and the the renewed Constitution, and that's what then they deployed in the um, infamous Nuremberg laws of denaturalization of. of uh, Jewish citizens in Nazi Germany, and also the racial qualities. The you know how many uh, grandparents have you? Do you have to have in order to be considered Jews? Right, that comes in uh, in 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 several of the um, legal cases in the in the United um, in the United States. Um, so, uh, so the, the American model of creating second-class citizenship um, and the anti-miscegenation anti laws that were in place in American all states uh, were the model then for Nazi laws um, uh, against Jews and anti-miscegenation laws and and uh, denaturalization laws. 
Uh, and that kind of goes full circle because, as I mentioned earlier, the first anti-miscegenation laws are against uh, Jews and Christian intermarriage in the Christian Roman Empire. Well, and this is going to have to be my last question, unfortunately. I on my On my prep doc, I literally have 25 more questions for you and would love to spend more time in this conversation. I really appreciated your book. But but for the sake of time, I want to move us forward into thinking about more modern and current uh, white supremacist movements that are showing their power, particularly in the U.S., but also certainly throughout Europe. Um, I'm wondering if you can if you can try to circle us back with how those movements are taking inspiration, certainly from earlier American colonial and, and slave approaches of racialization, but also the anti-Semitism that was rooted in that process that you gave us such great background on already. Yes, the, what we are seeing in the United States, the, the fissures are really evident right from the beginning. And certainly politically, the rhetoric that uh, came out in the Missouri debate, the uh, Dred Scott case, is is the same rhetoric we're hearing right now. Essentially, two different visions of what this country is, and that is all. That is that is essentially the quintessential debate of the modern era. Uh, are we, you know, liberal democracies where everybody is equal, regardless of their race, gender? Uh, religion and, you know, all these categories, or are we ethno-nationalist states and, and therefore we do not allow citizenship? And that is the debate that was taking place in 18th century Europe concerning Jews. That is the debate over citizenship that was taking place in the United States in the 19th century uh, regarding Black Americans. And that is the voices, the legal perhaps and also epistemic communities uh, seem to be uh, uh, sort of continuing along the, the these lines. The complicating aspect is of course now the social media and and in the context of the United States and this sort of melding of anti anti-semitism, um, with anti-black racism in these explicit ways that you mentioned, whether in Charlottesville or elsewhere, is um, coming also through the um, through the channels that were and propaganda that were created by the Nazis, uh, and that is something very important to remember, and that is uh, something that that uh, sort of ripples into. Um, also the various discourses um, around the Middle East today, uh, that is a very powerful propaganda that has been translated into English and is available through these various white supremacist uh, websites and all these tropes are beginning to resurface and recirculate in different memes through various social media. So it, it, it and and what was very brilliant about the Nazi propaganda is that they grounded it in history, in historical sources, selectively uh, chosen, obviously to. And that was um, the voice of editor, educator, activist, their, author, mom, um, and Berkeley's uh, poet laureate and, uh, Aya de Leon. Uh, uh, I will join ideas, us for the last few minutes. Uh, of each but of our nonetheless, uh, historical, historical uh, sources from the, uh, from the earlier period. Uh, and again, to justify the various discriminations. I just want to add also something that maybe listeners don't know that the word racism was actually invented, coined. That's it for the day. Family in the Law context and Disorder of Nazi anti-Semitism, racialized anti-Semitism, and, and it was first even used in the, um, the, the crisis the end of the by searching for Law and Disorder with Cat uh, Brooks magazine and follow us in on social media at Law and Dis. Uh, when they were reporting about, about what was happening in Nazi Germany. So it's a very interesting, uh, interesting way to let these ideas are connected. Anti-racism, anti-black racism, anti-Semitism is very much connected. If you're incarcerated and want to send us a letter, you can write to Law and Disorder, Care of Cat Brooks, KPFA 1929, Martin Luther King, 
many of the whether dog Berkeley, whistles or not so uh, subtle dog whistles that we, we will hear occasionally uh, on the right, on the air. I think is take something care of to remember because the dynamics of power and domination um, were uh, very similar and were really concerned with both Jews and, and, and black people. And I think that is very often forgotten. Um, and especially in the United States, where Jews certainly um, became very successful. Uh, they were able to climb socially, take advantage of the equal citizenship rights that they were able to get in the United States. And it is very difficult for many people to see that the same dynamics of discrimination or some of the models were in fact uh, rooted in, that are that were deployed in the United States against people of color were in fact rooted in the early legal frameworks and also habits of thinking that developed uh, in antiquity uh, against Jews. Well, Magda, I want to thank you for your deep research. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the voice of Magda Tetzer, a professor of history and the Schwidler Chair of Judaic Studies at Fordham University, as well as the president of the American Academy of Jewish Research. Her book that we discussed today is called Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Antisemitism and Racism. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.